Well, good morning to you all. I consider it a great honor uh, to be standing in front of you. I consider it a great honor to be asked one more time to have a chance to speak to you. Sorry. As a congregation that I love. I didn't expect this. Last night was better. I, uh, I know some of you will find this to be news, but uh, I've taken a job with a different church in town. And so, as I said, it's just special one more time. And to you in the 01, I've always enjoyed being with you as well, and I'm grateful for this chance to talk to you also. I became a Christian. Oh, sorry. Well, thank you. Thank you. I became a Christian in 1987, and when I did, I was under the impression that life would have to be different now. Now that I was a Christian, I would have to do more Christian-y things, and that I would have to not do those not Christian-y things that I did, that I was called to have a new set of values and perspectives. It's right that I felt this way. Jesus talks to us as a light of the world, that we would be salt and light in the world. Paul talks about us being ambassadors and having a unique aroma. There was something supposed to be different enough about Christians that Peter said that we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. So it was right that I wanted to be different, but I think I went about it the wrong way. I remember in college, I would make a point, even be pretty showy about the fact that I was praying before my meals. I would hold doors open for people with a Christian-y grin, somehow to help them to see that, well, I was so kind because I was a Christian, and I certainly made a point of going to daily Mass, and on a college campus, that's different. But I did it hoping people would know that I was a Christian. A right heart, but a wrong approach. But it it speaks to something that is becoming increasingly a problem in this world today. Increasingly, there are more and more people who look less and less different as Christians than the general population. Marriage statistics and divorce statistics show almost no difference between Christians and non-Christians. Ethical perspectives in terms of decisions at work and the way people operate at work are very much aligned, Christians and non-Christians. Even you and your neighborhoods, me and my neighborhood, we don't always look all that different than our neighbors. There's supposed to be something that makes us different as Christians. There's supposed to be something that for every Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, they'd be growing with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And yet, somehow, we look very much like those around us. And I think there are two sort of competing issues. One of those is an alignment issue. Perhaps you've had this experience driving a car with bad alignment. You have to constantly hold on to the wheel. If you let go for even a bit, you steer off the road. And so you're constantly holding it in fear of letting go. And some people, me included, especially in my early days, approached my faith 
as trying to hold on to a straight road when every part of me wanted to drift. Well, the problem with an alignment issue is if you ever let go, you go off, or if you hold on for too long, the tire wears funny and you have a blowout. It's unsustainable. It's unfulfilling. Ultimately, what we need isn't to hold on to a wheel that wants to drift. It's to turn instead and have an aligned heart that desires to do and put into practice the things of God. And so it's an internal issue, not a behavioral issue, that a Christian really needs to address. Another issue uh, that I think causes some Christians not to be all that different than the general population counterparts is an issue of Christians believing that what they've signed up for is a benefit that comes to fruition upon their death. And so this one, perhaps the best illustration, might be to remember something from the movie Caddyshack. Bill Murray played an assistant greenskeeper named Carl, and at one point, as Carl, he's addressing some of the other caddies at this high-end country club. And he tells them about a time that he caddied for the Dalai Lama. And he says that at the end of the round, the Dalai Lama hadn't given him a tip, and so he chased him down, and he said, hey, Lama, how about a little something for the effort? Upon which the Dalai Lama looked him straight in the eye and said, I don't have a tip for you, but I want you to know that on your deathbed, you will receive complete and total consciousness, to which Carl says, so I got that going for me, which is nice. I think for some Christians, there's this vague sense that, well, I don't know what my Christianity means, but somewhere at the end of my life, I've got this benefit, this death benefit that'll pay out, and I'll have some new life with God. Jesus talked about bringing life and life abundantly. Paul talked to Timothy about having the life that is truly life. When I read the passage that I want to share with you today, I read it with a sense of delight, a sense of seeing uh, in a beautiful way the life that God intends for us to live with Him, a description of a with God life, a life that is led in the fullness and the joy and the desire for the things of God to be drawn to Him, to follow Him, to want to be like Him. And so I want to share that with you today. I want to share Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30, but I want to share them in Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. And so as I go through this, I want to break it down in some simple things that describe the life that is truly life. Let me read the passage to you, Matthew 11, 25 to 30. Abruptly, Jesus broke into prayer. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've concealed your ways from sophisticates and know-it-alls, but spelled them out clearly to ordinary people. Yes, Father, that's the way you like to work. Jesus resumed talking to the people, but now tenderly. The Father has given me all these things to do and say. This is a unique father-son operation, coming out of father and son intimacies and knowledge. No one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does, but I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. Are you tired, worn out, 
burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. When we talk about the life that is truly life, considering these first verses where Jesus says, Thank you, Father. You've concealed your ways from sophisticates and know-it-alls, but revealed them to ordinary people. The first part about life that is truly life is that it's really about ordinary people seeking God as He is. Jesus, of course, called ordinary people. He called Galileans people of little substance, people of little repute. He called a fisherman, a tax collector, a zealot. Jesus called to follow him people who were lepers, prostitutes, women, children. He made heroes in his stories of Samaritans and women. Jesus was always about ordinary people. He didn't gather the righteous religious leaders. He didn't gather those who were the greatest scholars of the Old Testament or those who had the most power and authority. His heart was for ordinary people. The truth is, Jesus would have grabbed anybody that wanted to follow him. The problem is, extraordinary people tend to know they're extraordinary, and they often sit in their own perspective, their own ideals, their own accomplishments, their own achievements. And in talking about these, these, they fail to ever see the opportunity to experience something different. They're so full of themselves that they fail to be aware of what Jesus has to offer. But ordinariness doesn't come from putting yourself down or believing little about yourself. Ordinariness really comes from having a full and deep perspective of God's extraordinariness and greatness. You see, ordinariness comes when we see the greatness of God and come to a realization that it's unique, that He might actually want to have a relationship with us. Ordinariness comes when we see His control, His sovereignty, His love, His holiness, His perfection, and His incredible desire to draw us all into Himself. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, had this experience of ordinariness. He entered into the throne room of God, which in that chapter is described as this amazing place full of lights and sounds and voices of people singing, these creatures singing. Everything is indescribable, full of glory and greatness. And Isaiah, in that moment, as he sees God, says, "'Woe to me, I am ruined.'" I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He knew he wasn't complete in and of himself. He knew he was ordinary. And by himself, he had no business being before God. But gratefully, God cleansed him, restored him, prepared him, redeemed him, invited him in. And so a little bit later, when God says, whom shall I send? Isaiah is the first to raise his hand and say, here I am send me. Ordinary people are ordinary simply because they see how incredible God is, and they're honored to be included in God's kingdom, to be invited into God's love, to be redeemed into His holiness, 
invited to live a life with Jesus. Another thing about ordinary is that it's not something you earn. In a time of Olympics, we're aware that many people go through Olympic trials and that those who get to compete are those who can go faster, higher, or stronger. But with God, the beauty is He's not asking you to try out. He's not asking you to participate and demonstrate your worthiness. Paul writes in Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works that anyone should boast. God's offer is to everybody, every ordinary person. And one unique thing about ordinary people is they tend to demonstrate the extraordinary grace and power of God at work in their lives. There's a time in Judges where Gideon fights this battle against the Midianites. And in doing it, God has pruned Gideon's army down to a very small number. The odds are overwhelmingly against him. And God says, I wanted to do that so that in your victory, people would recognize it wasn't you, your strategies, and how savvy you are, but it was me in you. The same is true in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John were once fearful and hiding, but now they were emboldened with Christ. And as they speak in the town, as they heal, as they bring miracles, the people who are looking on say this about them in Acts 4.13. They knew that Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men, but they could tell that they had been with Jesus. I wish and I hope that that could be said about me, that someone looking on would say, I can tell that he has been with Jesus. And I hope for you that that would be said about you, that people see in you a certain grace, a certain peace, a certain love, a certain desire for God's people to know how valuable they are, how loved they are, and how truly special they are. Ordinary people reveal the greatness of God and people can tell that they had been with Jesus. But there's a bit of a catch here. It's not really easy to be ordinary. Perhaps you'd recall, I can only recall one part of this commercial. It was probably 10 years ago. It has a boy pumping his fist saying, I want to rise to middle management. No one clamors for that. No one seeks that. No one's chasing after middle management. We're all awesome. We get participation trophies to tell us we're awesome. We have people who constantly tell us we're awesome. We strive to be awesome. We strive to get the best coaches, the best SAT scores, get into the best colleges, to have the best careers and the best spouses and the best houses and the best retirement plans. We desire awesome, and we're told in the American ideal that if we just clamor for it, if we strive for it, if we try really hard, it's ours for the taking. So when I ask you to be ordinary, I know that goes against some of the grain of how you're wired. I know in my own household, it always looks weird when I don't talk about this desire for greatness in my own name, but only in God's name working in me. Ordinary isn't easy, but God doesn't reveal himself the same way to sophisticates and know-it-alls. Reading on. Jesus resumed talking to the people, but now tenderly. The Father has given me all these things to do and say. This is a unique father-son operation coming out of father and son intimacies and knowledge. 
No one knows the way the Son, the Son the way the Father does, nor the Father the way the Son does. But I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. There are, of course, some great lines here. The inclusion of the word tenderly is a great description of Jesus. The idea of this relationship, father-son operation, born out of intimacies and knowledge, this closeness. But I want to focus on the line here, ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. The life that is truly life includes learning and listening willingly. The first thing you notice here is that Jesus isn't keeping anything to himself. His heart isn't to hide it. There aren't some obscure codes that we need to crack, some unique way we need to look at the Bible upside down and sideways, and then we'll figure out what it really means. We don't have to play it backwards. The Bible is straightforward. In fact, God wants to make himself known. God has said that he doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to come to the knowledge of him. We also know that God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but would have eternal life. God wants to make himself known. That's why the beauty and order of the world is the general revelation that helps anyone to see that there must be a God. But then the revelation that comes from the Word, the Bible that we have that helps us to understand and see who God is. And also... There's the revelation that comes from people who make God's word and God's truth clear to you, who walk with you side by side in the community of brothers and sisters who follow Christ. And then for some, there's specific revelation that might come through the way of dreams or visions. God wants to make himself known to us. They're not keeping it to themselves But there's this other line that is just so incredible, this idea that he wants to go over it line by line with us, that he wants to become this personal tutor to you. It's almost like Elon Musk wanting to go over how you can make a Tesla of your own. It's like Thomas Jefferson going over the Declaration of Independence line by line, telling you stories about the Founding Fathers and what went into making this document. It's like Lin-Manuel Miranda telling you how he came up with Hamilton and how he came up with the rhymes and the story and the way. It's like our current presidential candidates desiring to tell you their strategies clearly and effortlessly so that you under... Never mind. That's a bad example. Line by line, Jesus as your personal tutor... And it says that Jesus does this tenderly. When Jesus came over the eastern hill and saw Jerusalem towards the end of his life, he looked down at Jerusalem and he wept. He looked at the people and saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He said, if you only you knew what would save you. He longs for each and every one of you to fully understand his truth and the heart of God for you. He wants to go over it with you. And then there's this next part. Anyone willing to listen? Are you willing to listen? To listen, of course, is not just to hear it, but it's to hear it and obey it. 
to hear it and put into practice the words of Jesus as you understand them, to put into practice the instruction, the direction, the call, and the challenge that Jesus puts forth. Are you faithful with what you've already heard, the lines that Jesus has already revealed? Are you doing the things that he's asked of you? It's said that to whom much is given, much is expected. And for us, I'm sure, all of us, much is expected because so many of us have heard so much truth that we could respond to. Are we putting it into play, into action? It's not easy to be willing because willing often means being willing to change. And change isn't something we love. Ask any married couple who's been married over a year what it's like to will to change, to take on someone else's behaviors, actions, habits, hear someone else's advice and opinions. It's not easy. Our wills are stubborn. But as Jesus presents his truth, he wants us to hear it willingly and ready to respond. Proverbs tells us to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge him, and then he'll make our paths straight. Are you willing to hear what he says and to put it into action? I guess at some level the question is, do we really want to know and to experience and to live life with God? You see, for some people, when they talk about heaven, I think they talk about a place where they get to play for the Cubs, a place where they get to play the best golf courses every day of their life, a place where they get to visit the most exotic cities without jet lag or airplane food. They get to go and have chef-made meals and then do it all over the next day. But the problem with this is that when that's your vision of heaven, you don't really want God at all. You just want some form of a pleasure factory. Heaven is a place for people who want to live their lives with God the Father, to experience worship and closeness with God the Father. So are you willing? Are you willing to live the life with God the Father now and continue it in eternity as you continue to live with God? Willingness, oddly enough, doesn't flow out of willpower or logic. It flows out of understanding the goodness of God and his offer to you, contemplating it, if you will. There's a parable that's told about a pearl of great price, and when Jesus tells this parable, he describes a pearl in a field, and a man who discovers it goes back and sells everything that he has in order to acquire the field and with it the pearl, because he knows that what's there is worth so much more than what he holds already. Now, this isn't a a parable telling us to get rid of what we have, but it's a parable of desire. Do we really desire what God offers more than what we have? Do we really desire to do and be the kinds of people God asks us to be? It's not an easy question. None of this is easy But ordinary and willing people are able to experience life with God now. Finally, reading on. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. 
Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The life that is truly life includes Jesus wanting you to enter into apprenticeship to him. The first descriptions in these verses are primarily for Pharisees and religious people who are doing things against the alignment of their hearts. And so the net result of that is that you get tired, burnt out, worn out on religion. It'll eventually catch up if you're just operating against the alignment of your heart. So he says, I want you to see a new way. And he has this beautiful expression perhaps the best invitation in all of Scripture. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. He says, come to me. For you who feel like a failure, feel like life isn't working, feel confused, feel desperate, feel stuck, feel trapped, come to me. For you, new mom, with so little rest, totally exhausted, not sure if you're fit, come to me. For the parents of a child, for the parents of a teenager, for the parents of a grown child who wonder if they're doing things right, come to me. For that employee who doesn't know if they're making their numbers, if they can get by, if they feel like they have to take shortcuts, come to me for that person whose life just isn't quite right. Come to me. Of course it's not right. We're misaligned, but I will align your heart. I will make these things happen naturally, smoothly, easily, so that instead of forcing yourself to do behavior modification, I will bring truth out from the well of your own heart, pure and true. Come to me. And he has this offer of apprenticeship. He doesn't use those words. But he says, walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. That's what apprenticeship is. Walking with someone, working with someone, and watching how they do it. Jesus is inviting us to learn from him, to walk with him. Slow, gentle, even-paced, moving through life everywhere you go with Jesus by your side, Jesus with you when you first wake up, Jesus with you when you dress and prepare in the morning, and you can just say, God, be with me today. May I dress in your goodness and your love and your lightness. May I put on your character. Jesus with you as you get in the car. God, will you be with me as I go to work, as I start my day? With you as you have that difficult interaction with someone, Jesus, be with me. Remind me how much you love this person. Walk with me. All day with Jesus. Walk with him. And then work with him. Do the things Jesus did. Love people. Bless people. Accept people. Receive people. Remind people of their value and their worth. Heal people. Speak blessing into their lives. Accept people for who they are and invite them to discover their true greatness in God. Watch how I do it, quietly in the morning, getting away, throughout the day, breaking into prayer with the Father, gathering with friends, sharing meals, teaching things, noticing the people around him, not hurrying through life, 
And these, perhaps, are the words that I consider the most strong and appealing words I've ever read. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. My life in college was a forced form of Christianity. I wanted so badly to do it well and to do it right, and that's a good heart, but it took work. I was going against the grain of my own being. But when we say to Jesus, I do believe, help me in my unbelief, He can work in us to change our heart. The Holy Spirit will shape our heart. We are but just a clay jar, but Jesus is the treasure inside. And the life that He calls us to isn't one of hurrying, isn't one of working, isn't one of getting endlessly tired. It's just an unforced rhythm of drawing near to the Father and then bringing the Father's love wherever you go in the world and drawing near to the Father and bringing it to the world. And pretty soon it's not just we'll do that in the morning and spend the rest of the day draining it. It's this constant rhythm of back and forth, Father, world, Father, world, until the two almost overlap. That your love of God, your love of Jesus, your filling with the Holy Spirit all overlap in the person that you are wherever you go. It's an unforced rhythm. And it's unforced and easy because ultimately it's God's results that you're worried about. You're not worried about your work, your results, your reputation. You're fully aligned with God, and God will protect His own reputation and way. All of this is something to learn, and I just encourage you to consider God's offer, to consider how ordinary you might be, to consider being willing, and to consider to enter into a life of practice, arranging your life carefully around those things that will help you draw near to God and grow in your faith that you might live an unforced life. It's rhythmic, beautiful, loving, and true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this call. I thank you for this call to a life that is truly life. A life where our vision of you is full and great and amazed that you would care to know us. A life in which everything that you show us, everything that you reveal to us, everything that we learn about you is something that we are ready to put into action. A life in which we live, Lord, not by our efforts or willpower or strength, but by trusting you in all we do. Father, I pray for us right now. You said, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, then I will hear them and heal their land. We ask that you would heal our hearts, align our hearts, help us to want the things that you want and to live our lives just as you would live them if you lived in our place. Amen.